One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the podcast where we each bring a book and we chat. If you're new or if you've simply forgotten, our only rule is that our chosen books have to be more than two years old. After a brief hiatus, we wanted to start this episode with, quote unquote, some news. Some personal news. That's how it's normally announced, isn't it? (laughs) And it's always professional news. It's always professional news, yes. (laughs) Or we could just do a little public service announcement, which always feels quite um, lofty. This is definitely not a public service announcement. This is the last episode of Book Chat. We know it hasn't been running that long and it's had a few hiatuses, which is basically why we are pausing it for now. We love doing it. And I love Bobby, not just because he's on air and it's awkward not to say that, (laughs) but we do book chat in our spare time and it's become increasingly hard to do that when we both have little babies and we are both starting on other long form projects. For example, we are recording this at 8.30pm on a Tuesday. My baby is in yet another sleep regression. Bobby's baby um, is learning what sleep is. And I'm so tired I could just face plant into my bed. And um, yeah, my baby is also in a sleep regression. So we, we, we have so much in common still. We've both got some very exciting things in the pipeline, which we can't tell you anything about. I hate it when people do that. But it means that we aren't able to give Book Chat the, the love and the required reading that it deserves. We're so grateful to all of you who've listened along and written in and read along with us. But for now, it is bye-bye book chat. I can only speak for myself here, but this pod was the most perfect thing to be doing last year while heavily pregnant and then with a newborn because it really reminded me of the joy of books, old books, forgotten books, books I'd never got round to reading, ones to reread. There was no pressure on this. It wasn't really about what was like sexy or what got the stats. (laughs) We just had a wonderful time and I deliberately didn't take on any mammoth stressful projects last year because of said baby. And so to be doing this instead felt really wonderful. So thank you, Bobby. You are very welcome. But as Bobby said, things change and neither of us has the time now that we once did. So we're being big and brave and calling it before we get too tired or resentful to record. But hopefully Bobby's going to pop up whenever he can on my newsletter books and bits there's an audio section so when we've got the time very informally we thought we might do a voice recording of us chatting about a book any book that's right your mother and i still love each other very very much (laughs) just kidding Uh, but but we do love you and and likewise pandora it, it has been a genuine joy to chat books with you and to to discover a genuine love for reading again that isn't just about you know what everyone else is talking about to 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 dredge up old books and find that you really like them uh so yeah Yeah. i will definitely see you over on on books and bits if you'll have me i definitely will for now we're gonna have to wipe away these flowing tears because (laughs) for the next hour or so it's business as usual and we are bringing you our lovely listeners some of the bona fide book chat that you know and hopefully love starting with some lovely emails we've received in our in our 
couple of months off. So Hannah has written in to recommend The Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Zhang, which is a book about food and desire. I can't believe you did the lovely listeners thing. That's really quite creepy. You're too young to be that creepy. <laughs> um, that is on my to-read shelves, that book. Not pile, note, not shelf singular, but to-read shelves. I hope you pictured me in like a cardigan with some very thick rimmed spectacles when I said lovely <laughs> listeners. You Aren't you often in a cardigan? I feel like you're I'm often quite in a cardigan a guy. Car- woolly cardi. Cardigan yeah. slippers and a pipe. Cardi guy. <laughs> Snoozing in my, in my sleepy era. <laughs> Brett emailed in to say that he is pro-spoilers. Uh, we love somebody who's pro-spoilers. He saves our episodes until he's read the book, uh, which he's, he's just done with Memorial by Brian Washington. Yeah, that's a great idea. Very much encourage that. And our third lovely listener of the month is Amelia, who is also pro-spoilers. And she says that regarding our discussion of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison not being on many UK syllabuses, that it was actually on her reading list while she was an undergrad at Leeds Uni, where she believes you went, Pandora, and that it totally changed her worldview. More importantly, I did not know you went to Leeds. I went to Leeds. If you're telling me that was on my syllabus, I'm thinking maybe she's younger than me I don't remember reading it and that is very very bum out if it was on my syllabus and I don't remember reading it I just remember reading Gawain it was all like middle ink what's that old English called Gawain and the Green Knight yes I, I, that was oh. on my syllabus actually. oh but yes Bobby I was many years above you because I am old and you are young but we look the same age <laughs> yeah sure I mean I was gonna say you insulting me but then that would sound like I was insulting you so you've, you've yes! got me to bind that you can't do anything you can't do anything did you used to do the joke I was about to do it to you and then I realized it wouldn't make sense to any of the listeners did you used to do the joke at um Leeds being like too much time in the library because there was a pub next to campus called the library there was a pub no uh luckily for me and everyone who knew me I never made that joke oh but it is true that you could still smoke in nightclubs when you're at uni you could I remember writing a piece for the Leeds University paper in my second year about how smirting was the new love connection because basically everyone had to go outside into the smoking area to have a cigarette and I observed people being like being like oh do you have a lighter yeah so I thought it I called it smirting and I wrote a piece about it smirting I, I like it it should be in the um in the dictionary Bobby, what are you reading right now? So I'm writing again at the moment. So I'm I'm, I'm tr- currently trying to untangle the spaghetti of what will hopefully eventually be my third book. The third? I'm so excited for Small Hours to come out and you're already on to the third. Oh, Small Hours by Bobby Palmer, publishing March 14th, available from all good bookshops. Yeah, that one. Yeah, over, yeah okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so book three's underway. So I am currently returning to reading a book I, I've read time and time again, which is The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. I'm usually skeptical of writing guru books. I'm I'm usually skeptical of any kind of guru books, but this one has a really intelligent analytical approach to constructing and deconstructing characters and their motivations. So I always return to it when I'm trying to cre- kind of create a framework for making people who seem real in in a book. Yeah. So yeah, big big recommend to any aspiring novelists or screenwriters who are listening. How about you, Pandora? What are you reading? He wrote a book about selfies once, Will Store. I interviewed him about it, I think about five years ago. Anyway, currently I am reading Jilly Cooper's earliest works, which all have single names. Emily, Octavia, Prudence, Imogen. Can't remember the fifth. I'm reading Emily, but they'll, they are so short that I'll be on to Octavia tomorrow night, I reckon. All right, Lou Bega. 
that's a that's a mumbo number five joke. Just okay. I thank God you explained that because I definitely wouldn't have got there. I found the whole lot of these books instantly um, as first editions. I I really wanted the first editions because I borrowed one from my friend, and the covers are so so good. It's all women with like so much eyeliner and really floofy hair. And yeah, to use one of Jilly's favorite adjectives, the covers are ravishing. Spoiler warning, although everyone seems to love spoilers, so as you were. Bobby, what book have you brought to the table for our big finale? It's a book which I have been a big fan of for a long time, and I think I've mentioned probably every time you and I have ever spoken about books. It's Stoner by John Williams. Pandora, have you heard of this book before? Well, obviously, because I keep mentioning it. <laughs> I'd also heard of this book before because you've mentioned it um, quite a few times. I waved it away each time because I genuinely thought it was a book about a bro who smoked lots of weed. I thought it sounded like something written by Brett Easton Ellis about a particular time in American pop culture. And I did not want to read that book. Turns out it was the total opposite. Actually, sort of as far as possible from the book I thought it was. Um, and as soon as I received my copy, I realised that I was way off base. Funnily enough, Brett Easton Ellis is one of this book's many, many very vocal fans, though. So you, you know, there really? is a connection there. Yeah. Stoner has got the feel of a great American novel, but um, at its heart, it's, it's very small scale. It's a campus novel, and it's not about a stoner, but it's about a professor at the University of Missouri called William Stoner who it follows right through his entire, entirely normal life, right up until his death. But before we talk about the book, I think we have to talk about the story behind the book, because it's such a huge part of its modern mythology. I love the way this book is built to modern audiences as the greatest American novel you've never heard of. Yeah, and and I I think it's a really fair tagline. It, It was written in 1963 by the author John Williams, whose life overlapped with his character in a number of ways. He was also a professor at the University of Missouri. He was also overlooked throughout his life. He's actually not even the most famous John Williams. The most famous John Williams, of course, directed the Star Wars music. Of course. This John Williams, not Star Wars John Williams, was modestly successful as an author, but a friend at the time said he was kind of famous for not being famous. Stoner was the most obvious example of that. It was really well-received. It got a great review in The New Yorker, but it sold less than 2,000 copies and was out of print within a year. John Williams isn't an entirely tragic figure. He was well regarded by the literary set, uh, and another of his books did win the National Book Award, although in something that feels very fitting, it was a joint winner. He was really well respected as an author, but he, he died in relative obscurity in 1994. Can you imagine if someone spoke about you after your death as not an entirely tragic figure? (laughs) I'd be depressed if I was alive. I'd want to be either not tragic at all or an entirely tragic figure. It'll probably be the latter. (laughs) And then, of course, there's a plot twist, which doesn't even involve TikTok. Oh, like all good stories, the story of Stoner has a plot twist. Uh, Fast forward to the late 2000s, way before TikTok, but way after Stoner was written. And a very strange series of events begins to be set in motion. You have to imagine me with like a, a, a torch under my face, like I'm doing this around a campfire. The New York Review of Books Classics, uh, a publishing house, digs this book back up, book chat style, and says, 
hey, this old book that no one's talking about anymore is really good. So they publish it. Once again, it's received well, but modestly. Then the French novelist, Anna Gavalda, who is a literary titan in France, reads it in English because it isn't in translation anywhere. She says, hey, this is really good. So she immediately makes her publisher buy the rights so she can translate it herself. I love that, that nobody in France had read it till this woman who's like, this is great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine having that kind of like heft is amazing yeah so that set off this incredible domino effect all of the other european publishers caught wind and they said okay well if if that's happened then this book must be really something special so across europe it starts being bought and then it starts being read it becomes a number one bestseller in the netherlands first i think and then just you know everywhere else in europe country by country domino by domino it just explodes that's me mixing metaphors <laughs> the dominoes explode amazing um, it's it, if you didn't think this story was exciting enough the dominoes actually explode <laughs> so by the end of 2013 it could probably have staked a claim at the time to being one of the biggest books in the world the new york times called it a perfect novel julian barnes called it a terrific novel ian McEwan called it a beautiful novel nick hornby went a few further and said it's a brilliant beautiful inexorably sad wise and elegant novel was it a novel it is a novel actually yeah a brilliant beautiful <laughs> and extremely sad wise and elegant one everyone loved it basically um 50 years after it was first published uh and 50 years after it first flopped basically john williams was was finally vindicated as this enormous international literary powerhouse he just wasn't around to see it would you Definitely say he was an enormous international literary powerhouse because I still think this book is quite under the radar. It is now. It, I remember when it was being reappraised. And this happens quite often. You know, this happens probably once every few years. It's like, this is the best book you've never heard of. But at the time, people were talking about it like it was the best book that anyone had ever written, ever. You know, it, it would have been... That to- that to- in 2013, totally passed me by. It's such a classic sad but romantic backstory isn't it someone's art never being appreciated in their lifetime like van gogh who only sold one painting in his lifetime before dying age 37 which is just one year older than me which has depressed me all week since i found that out or emily bronte from wuthering heights which we spoke about in our third episode and that one was actually even sadder because the critics were so mean about her book when she was alive yeah so was her sister (laughs) her own sister god that's actually amazing when you look back on that yeah, it's great. It is a romantic story and it is it is remarkable. And and the reason I bring it up first is that as a contemporary reader, you cannot help but have your interpretation of the book be be coloured by the story behind it. Because it is a novel about being unrecognised and unremarkable and unhappy. Like the story behind it, it, it's very bittersweet. I found it really sad to read, but I'm not sure William Stoner would have said he was unhappy. I would have thought he'd say his life was just as he deserved and just as he expected, which actually now I think about it is quite sad because if it was just as he expected, he obviously expected very little. But he denied himself his one true love and his daughter basically became an alcoholic to deal with her upbringing. So actually scratch that. It's, yeah, it's really sad. It's quite hard to describe the plot without putting listeners off, putting listeners to sleep maybe because nothing... Nothing big happens. William Stoner, he's from a hard scrabble background. He he breaks tradition with his farming father. He attends university as a student and 
essentially stays there, um, becomes a professor, stays at the same university his entire life until he dies. It's about an unremarkable life, which Williams makes remarkable through the sheer power of prose. And, you know, the fact that he dies at the end isn't a spoiler because the first page actually sets out very, very clearly and quite bleakly what the novel intends to do. So I just wanted to read that. William Stoner entered the University of Missouri as a freshman in the year 1910 at the age of 19. Eight years later, during the height of World War I, he received his Doctor of Philosophy degree and accepted an instructorship at the same university, where he taught until his death in 1956. He did not rise above the rank of assistant professor, and few students remembered him with any sharpness after they had taken his courses. When he died, his colleagues made a memorial contribution of a medieval manuscript to the university library. This manuscript may still be found in the Rare Books collection, bearing the inscription presented to the Library of the University of Missouri in memory of William Stoner, Department of English, by his colleagues. An occasional student who comes upon the name may wonder idly who William Stoner was, but he seldom pursues his curiosity beyond a casual question. Stoner's colleagues, who held him in no particular esteem when he was alive, speak of him rarely now. To the older ones, his name is a reminder of the end that awaits them all, and to the younger ones, it is merely a sound which evokes no sense of the past and no identity with which they can associate themselves or their careers. That's it. <laughs> merely a sound. I don't believe no one remembered William Stoner. He was quite a character in his old age. I think in his efforts to make Stoner sound unremarkable he makes his life sound meaningless and it isn't i think that's kind of the point though i think i think the book almost challenges you it's it's kind of uh, yeah i mean it's kind of suggesting isn't it that like something unremarkable doesn't... it's basically saying why read this book because this nothing there's nothing interesting about this guy and then it, it goes on to to tell you that a small life can matter i it reminds me it reminds me of my my favorite film of all time which is it's a wonderful life because that's about someone who the whole point is that he won't be remembered as a great man or a, a titan of industry or literature, but he does matter and he does make an impact in his own small way, as everyone does. Uh, the, the famous quote is, no man is a failure who has friends. To mix my cultural references, when I was reading this book again, I was struck by the fact that Stoner himself is kind of an anti-Gatsby, another great American novel, another Midwestern farm boy who reinvents himself. That New Yorker reappraisal, which called it the greatest American novel you've never heard of, uses the same term, uh, anti-Gatsby, while it's wondering why Stoner never really reached an audience in the States. And I think even in 2013, it wasn't quite, it didn't quite fly in the in the US as it was as it was becoming a massive phenomenon in in Europe. So that article says this, Stoner is undeniably a great book, but I can also understand why it isn't a sentimental favorite in its native land. You could almost describe it as an anti-Gatsby. I suspect one reason Gatsby is a classic is that despite his delusions and his bad end, we all secretly think Gatsby's pretty cool. Americans don't really see him as an anti-hero or a tragic figure, not any more than they see the current breed of charismatic criminals on cable as villains. Gatsby's a success story. He makes a ton of money, looks like a million bucks, owns a mansion, throws great parties, and even gets his dream girl for a little while at least. Stoner's protagonist is an unglamorous, hard-working academic who marries badly, is estranged from his child, drudges away in a dead-end career, dies, and is forgotten. A failure. I also read something that said how Stoner is so different to Gatsby 
and so different to books being written at that time because there's kind of quite a lot of sort of glamorous like lyricism in the way they're written and obviously the way that this is written is very is like deliberately spare I think Stone is much cooler than Gatsby he works he rears his daughter he cooks he cleans without a word of complaint I think he's a bloody rock star for doing all that and this may be my age showing doesn't exactly do himself any favors I think is is something that I was finding time and time again on a reread He's infuriating in his meekness. He does his work with neither pleasure nor distress. He gets straight B's as a student, which is exactly what he expects and hopes for. He's self-consciously flat as a teacher. When the Second World War breaks out, he discovers within himself a quote-unquote vast reserve of indifference. His career is thwarted before it's even begun by his decision not to go and fight in the war. But that's because he's not a man of action. It's you know He's not a pacifist. He's just not a man of action. He watches his life from the outside. You have this bit where it says he's a tall, thin, stooped man in the same room in which he had sat as a tall, thin, stooped boy, listening to the words that had led him to where he had come. And because he isn't a man of action, it's the people around him who shape the trajectory of his life, mostly for the negative. Yeah, okay, that's true. He's quite vibey with some of his friends at university. They have quite a good rapport. But yeah, I mean, his wife, to me, is irredeemable. I actually think she's too appalling to be realistic. Why on earth would he marry someone who didn't speak and trembled and cried every time she saw him and ran out of the room? I cannot understand. I did read something about how she is very much a type in American writing at that time as seen in, again, Scott Fitzgerald and Tennessee Williams and Faulkner. Beautiful, unstable, hysterical. I think she's probably deeply depressed, but they didn't have the words for it. Yeah, she's she's deeply unhappy. And and she basically spends her whole life resenting Stoner, William, and and, and thwarting him at every turn. They, they've got a terrible marriage. One of the worst marriages I think I've ever read, where they... they at the end, it, it seems like a small victory that they can talk like old friends or exhausted enemies. She does basically everything possible to make him miserable throughout his entire life. She takes away his study so that he has to work in this stifling little greenhouse. She comes between him and his daughter, which is one of the only relationships he ever cherishes. She chips away at him as as everyone else seems to. And, you know, things like the study, they seem really trivial when you say them in a conversation like this, but in the book... In a book that's about small victories and small defeats, it is heartbreaking that he has to just move his desk. <laughs> that's the kind of book this is. Oh, it's totally heartbreaking because when he realises that Edith is not fit to raise a daughter, he does absolutely everything to raise this, you know, this quiet and serious but joyful child. And she comes and works every day in his office with him. She's got her own little desk. And when Edith takes away her desk and buys her an entirely new wardrobe it it's so painful to read it's literally like she has she has cut their relationship and they can't ever find their way back to each other and both of them are yes too meek to say anything about it but it's I found that absolutely devastating to read I really wanted him to leave Edith What's fascinating to me is that he could have, he could have left her and taken Grace, especially in the 20s when the law was very much on the man's side about that kind of thing. But he'd never separate her from Grace, even though he knows that Grace would be better off taken away. What I want to know is, and this isn't particularly flattering if it is the latter, 
Did he stay out of goodness because he didn't want to leave his wife? He didn't want to leave his marriage? Or did he stay out of some sort of martyrdom slash stoicism slash apathy where he just doesn't believe he deserves a happier life? I kind of think that that, ni- that either of those would be giving him more agency than he's kind of capable of. I think he just stays because that's what he does. He stays, you know, he or he stays at university he stays in his marriage he stays as an assistant professor it's it's he's just this thing that stands still and the world moves around him it's a heartbreaking book it's it's so so much of the reading experience is just feeling gutted absolutely gutted and that that maybe doesn't sell it but it's you know it's it's a really emotional experience because of that he never stands up for himself at work and if edith is is one of the book's two minor villains then the other is Stoner's fellow professor Hollis Lomax, whose name can probably enter the book chat pantheon of, of great American character names, along with Moose Freed from <laughs> Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, or D.D. Halcyon Day from Tales of the City. Or Diamond Feltz from Close Range. Oh my God, Diamond Feltz. That, that one is an, an all-timer. I actually talked about one of John Williams' other books, Butcher's Crossing, when we discussed Close Range, um, and that one's totally different. It's a Western about buffalo hunters and it's it's brilliant i think i love it maybe more than this one as as like an entertaining read it's also very bleak unsurprisingly i digress hollis lomax the name hates stoner because of a very minor professional disagreement and thus he just makes his entire professional life a misery yes very sad then very sad have we said it's sad it's my revenge for you making me read All But Man Is, which is, I think that put me into a <laughs> into a, a deep funk for many days. I went and met my editor in London and I was kind of staring wistfully at the Thames sitting on this bench and she was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I'm reading this book called All That Man Is and it's destroying me. <laughs> but no, this, So thank you, Pandora. This one's not a barrel of laughs either. There's this passage, there's this passage that comes about two thirds of the way through the book that really sums up the... Uh, the vibe and i feel like we're doing everything to put people off reading it during that year and especially in the winter months he found himself returning more and more frequently to such a state of unreality at will he seemed able to remove his consciousness from the body that contained it and he observed himself as if he were an oddly familiar stranger doing the oddly familiar things that he had to do it was a dissociation that he had never felt before he knew that he ought to be troubled by it but he was numb and he could not convince himself that it mattered. He was 42 years old and he could see nothing before him that he wished to enjoy and little behind him that he cared to remember. So yeah, that's that's kind of the vibe of, of Stoner up until the point he gets into his 40s. Pandora, do you want to tell our listeners what you WhatsApp me uh, at this point while you were reading this book? I said, never have I been happier that a married man has had an affair. He has an affair, and it's probably the happiest part of the book and the happiest patch of his life. And then, of course, Catherine leaves because stupid old Hollis Lomax has found out and it's going to ruin him, and he doesn't go with her. And I wish so much that he would, but he says something about how they wouldn't be themselves anymore if they ran away, which I think is evasion, personally. Yeah, once again, he does have the chance at a better life, and he doesn't take it. And I, I think by that point, you realise that he he's never going to, change he's never going to leave he's never going to change his is a, is a life defined not by great escapes and grand gestures but by tiny little victories and being happy for a while falling in love for a while being a good father for a while or breaking out of his shell and being an inspiring teacher but only for a while only sometimes he makes tiny impacts he wins tiny wins and it's 
almost enough. And in that sense, the, 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 the book is a bit of a Trojan horse because it's quiet and it's somber and it lulls you into this sense of averageness. But as all of this failure and this pity mount up across an entire life, you end up feeling this really great love for this sad, quiet man that you you feel like you've known since he was a child. And for this whole world, a world filled with like normal, disappointed people who all have their own quiet passions and are all feeling sad. It really infects their daughter Grace too. Like when she comes to visit him and he notes that he's happy that she's an alcoholic because she has a way of dealing with her despair. And you think, my God, the trauma of her upbringing really did number on her. And it's fascinating when she reveals that she got deliberately pregnant to escape the stultifying home that her mother kept. And actually that reminded me a bit of what's her name in Virgin Suicides, who had been incredibly promiscuous at school as a way of escaping the sort of claustrophobia of home. Something I found really interesting rereading this was that I first read it when it was going through that big rediscovery about 10 years ago. So it's a book about a man moving through the stages of his life. And I've now read it as a 20-year-old man and as a 30-year-old man. And both times I've been profoundly moved, but for totally different reasons. I imagine you connected with the fatherhood bit much more now. Yes, I, I connected a lot more with some of the more obvious elements that passed me by as a smooth and supple 20-year-old, uh, like its treatment of ageing, of time slipping away. But exactly, this this really bittersweet relationship with his daughter and now being the father of a daughter myself, it really got to me. It, it broke my heart. I was also surprised at how many things I'd misremembered because, we, you know, we've talked about Edith almost as a comic book villain and I hated her when I first read this book. But this time I just I felt really sad for her because she's so damaged and she's so unhappy. And she's acting out because she's she's the most miserable character in the book, more so than Stoner himself. Yeah, she's like something out of the yellow wallpaper. I don't want to diagnose her, but she's got some sort of personality disorder, I would suggest. Like when she comes back from her time back home, seeing her mum and she's completely reinvented as a flapper girl and she says to Grace god this was sad and interesting it pulls at Stoner's heartstrings which I would have thought wouldn't be pullable by Edith anymore she says that she used to be taken out all the time when she was at school too and she was very popular and we know that to be a lie because Stoner met her when she was 18 and she was exhausted and fragile and barely spoke and her own mother is cut from the same cloth. I mean, how tragic is this as a descriptor? Her voice was thin and high, and it held a note of hopelessness that gave a special value to every word she said. That same trip when he meets Edith's parents, we learn that Edith, who won't even look at him and leaves the room every time he's in it and is paler than a ghost, and he still goes ahead and marries her. She plays the piano for them, but she played stiffly and badly with many mistakes, and she then announced that she was feeling unwell and went to her room. And lying in bed after me this, on a first date. Lying in bed after this bleak performance, Stoner supposed that all men were as uncertain as he had suddenly become and had the same doubts. I mean, what the hell, Stoner? This is miserable. But then, I mean, that was then, I suppose, getting married when you barely knew each other. That was the terror of the age. 
But yeah, as we've said, Edith is just so unspeakably vile to him. When when her father dies, Stoner says that her mother can come and live with them if she wants, you know, that it would be a pleasure to have her. And Edith replies sweetly. She's often sweet, which makes it even more poisonous. Oh, Willie, don't you know she'd rather die? And he just mildly replies, I suppose I do. I mean, poisonous. Don't you think, uh, I don't know if, how much of a, a Simpsons fan you are, but don't you think there's a vibe of... Um, Not. Do you know, who, do you know who, I, who I mean when I say Hans Molman? No. Okay, well, <laughs> any, any listeners who, who have watched The Simpsons, uh, Stoner has a vibe of Hans Molman, and you can imagine him being like, I suppose I do. No, I just, I actually imagined it like really mildly, like, I suppose I, I, do. I do. Yeah. But reading, I suppose I do know that your mother would rather die than come and live with me. Cheers, I suppose I do. (laughs) Something else that surprised me is just how campusy this book is. Um, And that's something I didn't notice the first time. It barely leaves the university, which felt very normal when I read it as a university student, but now feels like quite a a striking and purposeful choice. It's not uh, dark academia. It's its own thing. Grey academia, maybe. And I think it's a really smart move to set it in a college because university is a place where time does stand still. New students arrive and leave, but Stoner and his fellow professors never leave. They're forever teaching the same classes, holding the same petty grudges. We see their friendships and animosities evolve slowly over decades and decades. Uh, Something else I noticed on rereading is that when I first read it 10 years ago, I sobbed through the final pages, which is this long and florid description of Stoner's death where he's he's got ill and and you know he's been getting progressively iller and then he's lying on a couch and he's drifting in and out of consciousness people are saying goodbye to him all the time he's thinking so this is what it's like while i appreciated that this time i think it's a really beautiful um work of of imaginative fiction it didn't move me anywhere near as much as first time probably because i'd built it up in my head what did punch me in the gut was actually the dinner which is held in his honour right at the end of his career when he already knows he's dying. He's kind of been encouraged into retirement. Lomax throws this honorary dinner out of spite more than anything and Stoner is made to make a speech and he just says this, I have taught at this university for nearly 40 years. I do not know what I would have done if I had not been a teacher. If I had not taught, I might have. I want to thank you all for letting me teach. And that's all he has to say. I read out a quote from uh, Julian Barnes earlier, and that was that was taken from his Guardian review of the book. In it, he quotes a letter that John Williams wrote from the University of Missouri in 1963 to his agent about Stoner. He said, I suspect that I agree with you about the commercial possibilities, but I also suspect that the novel may surprise us in this respect. Oh, I have no illusions that it will be a bestseller or anything like that. But if it is handled right, it might have a respectable sale. The only thing I'm sure of is that it's a good novel. In time, it may even be thought of as a substantially good one. Very elegant. He writes letters like I imagine Stoner writes letters. Do you know what this really reminds me of, actually, is Elizabeth Strout. It's written like Lucy Barton is written. And actually, Lucy Barton has a not dissimilar upbringing to Stoner. I have never read any uh, Elizabeth Strout, but many have told me to, so I really should. It's sad that the success of this book happened after John Williams' life, John Williams's lifetime. It's always sad when that happens, but I think there's a real beauty in a book this quiet and thoughtful and and not over the top, finding such an enormous audience so long after it was written. Well, I'm very grateful for you to you for bringing it to my attention, and I hope you will continue to bring me your sad, slightly random <laughs> books to discover. 
for myself. And if anyone is listening to this episode of Book Chat in the year 2074, thank you for rediscovering us after so much time. <laughs> and don't forget to leave a review. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Pandora, what book have you brought this month? I wanted an excuse to reread The Unbearable Lightness of Being, the 1984 novel by the Czech writer Milan Kundera. And when you told me you hadn't read it, I thought, voila, Kundera it is. I was so glad you picked this one because it's one of those books which I've I've known about for my entire life. And despite not knowing a single thing about it, always known I should have read. Um, I didn't even know he was Czech. I didn't know a single thing about it beyond that very famous, very good title. Well, I found this really interesting because I thought of Milan Kundera as this literary titan. Philip Roth, for example, is responsible for Kundera being read in America in the 80s. But it turns out that none of my friends have read him. And when I mentioned him to a couple of friends this week, neither of them had even heard of him. And to be fair, when he died last summer, I didn't even clock his obituary. So he obviously hasn't stayed with our generation that much. It's really interesting you say that because something that made me laugh is that I just reread One Day by David Nichols and this book is oh, dreamy exactly. This book is mentioned really early on. It is in in the first few pages as a kind of signifier of a certain type of person in 1988 when the book uh, the, this part of the book is set. Uh, Dex is in M's apartment for the first time and he finds a copy of The Unbearable Lightness of Being spine creased at the erotic bits. Does that signify a person who wants to come across like a deep thinker but is actually a pretentious perv? So he describes it as someone who would use bourgeois as an insult. Um, (laughs) So yeah, basically a uni student who wants to seem intellectual but is just as horny as everyone else, which is very apt for the unbearable lightness of being. The mention in one day though, was that during the 90s, that bit? It was published in... 1988, that bit of the book. Okay, because I was going to say it was published in 2009, but... I reckon that that bit was in the 90s, as you say, 1988, which would show that it was very big at a particular time. Anyway, I chose this one because I think it's the most seminal of his work, along with perhaps the Book of Laughter and Forgetting. But I didn't recall that striking me the same way. And then most recently, there was the Festival of Insignificance. I love all the titles, incidentally. His books have great titles. Apparently, they're very different in Czech. We won't try reading them out in in Czech, but uh, they are very good titles. Quite Dave Eggers, actually. Mm. Dave Eggers' best title, I think, is Your Father's Where Are They? and The Prophets, Do They Live Forever? Yes, that's so funny you say that because I kept almost writing a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius instead of The Unbearable Lightness of Being when I was making notes for this. Different fare, very different fare, although perhaps not dissimilar brains. Um, I, I kept almost saying the unbearable weight of massive talent, which is the Nicolas Cage film. So that's very different fare. Oh my God, that's not a great title. Anyway, this book is about four characters. Thomas, his lover Sabina, his wife Teresa, and Sabina's other lover, Franz, in the Czech Republic during the Soviet invasion. Milan Kundera himself is a really interesting character because he was exiled from the Czech Republic in 1975 for anti-communist 
sentiment in his books. He emigrated to Paris and for a time his novels were banned from libraries. He was also quite sexy, which may or may not be relevant. Bobby, what did you think? What, do I think he's sexy? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, what, I, what did I think of the book? I first tried... You know what? I actually have... I've, ne- I've never seen a picture of him, so I'm going to Google him right now and see if he is. I think he looks a bit like Picasso. Oh, he is sexy, isn't he? He's, he's very, like mid-century literature. Yeah, yeah. yeah he looks like... <laughs> Turtlenecks and thick eyebrows. I first tried to read this book a couple of months ago in the days, not the weeks, the days after my daughter was born, um, and I just found it totally impenetrable, and I gave up. I came back to it this month on a little more sleep, and I loved it. Uh, in the same way that Stoner is a bit of a Trojan horse book in terms of its quietness, this is a Trojan horse book in that it seems to be about sex and male ennui, but it uses that as a prism through which to look at the subjugation of Czechs by the Soviet Union, especially the persecution of Czech intellectuals, which is it's fascinating. I was really glad to have, have read it. So how did you find rereading it? You know what? It didn't grab me nearly as much as I remembered it doing in my head, which shows why it's vital you reread books, especially if you've read them, you know, when you're pretty young. It was one of my favorite books of all time. I would regularly plonk it down on my best books list when I was doing, say, an interview to promote a piece of work. And it was this really seminal book for me. I read it when I was 17. It was possibly the first sort of really intellectual philosophy-ish thing I'd read before but I did think it would move me in the same way and I did find bits of it utterly brilliant but bits of it went totally over my head which means surely tons of it went over my head when I was 17 it felt quite disjointed as well I can totally imagine it being the kind of book that 17 year old Pandora would think was the coolest thing in the world you'd be talking about it while you were smirting (laughs) it's perfectly possible that I did think it was really cool because I also thought that Shantaram was pretty rad. It's not that I think, which is similarly pretentious, some could say. And by the way, Kandera being pretentious is a real like... Hot topic. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's hot, but that is a real... A topic. That is a topic. Yeah, it's a topic. Uh, It's not that I think unbearable lightness is bad at all. There were some really interesting observations about love and adultery and identity and female bodies, actually. I actually really liked how he wrote about Um, one of his main characters, which we'll get to in a bit. But all the Czech and Soviet history is fascinating, especially when it's funneled through characters like Thomas, who have his doctor's license taken away and he has to become a window washer. But when I reread it, and I don't remember this from last time, I got absolutely mired in all the kitsch stuff. Kundera is obsessed with kitsch and I literally do not understand his definition. There's a lot of thinking and theorizing throughout and it takes you out of the plot and it, it it's definitely what lost me when I first tried it a few months ago because it starts with pages and pages on Nietzsche and the and the eternal return and yes lots of kitsch my god Nietzsche's in the very first sentence isn't it imagine that would make a lot of people put it right back down again I couldn't understand any of that as I've forgotten everything about philosophy that I used to know I need to go back to Wikipedia and find out who stands for what theory. But back to kitsch. So kitsch, as I understand it, is anything sort of fake and surface level. So something pretending to be what it isn't. But then that would surely make kitsch light. 
So the whole idea is the lightness of being. So there's a lot about lightness of being, the heaviness of being. But kitsch can't be light because Sabina is light. And we know that definitively Sabina is not kitsch. Teresa is kitsch. And why would the old men, old man, commenting on the children playing to Sabina, he says they're a joyful picture and it's noted that that's a very kitsch thing to say because is it because he doesn't, he's taking the children at surface level that he can't know their emotions, he can't know if they mean as they look. My God, did I tie myself in knots with this. Yeah, that's quite kitsch of you actually. Is that your way of evading what kitsch actually is? No, kit, kitsch is as kitsch does. Uh, what were oh your what were your favourite bits uh, of the book on your reread? What did you like? It's not remotely helpful. I did enjoy lots of the philosophy, the easier to digest stuff. So I'm a basic bitch. This is quite useful, I thought. We can never know what we want because living only one life, we can neither compare it with our previous lives nor perfect it in lives to come. It's quite good. And I love the bit about poetic memory. I think actually I can see why my 17-year-old brain would have really unfurled at that. The brain appears to possess a special area which we might call poetic memory and which records everything that charms or touches us that makes our lives beautiful. I like the idea of that. Also, like learning about how Stalin's son died. Did you know that before? Uh, I didn't know that, and I immediately had to go to Google and check it was true, which it is. Um, it's a very haunting story, which involves uh, feces and electric fences. So apparently that bit is fictional, uh, but he did run at the electric yeah. fence. So only on, partly that's true. That's so kitsch of you to say. I fell down a Google hole and Stalin's children met really grisly ends, incidentally. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> <laughs> I loved learning so much about Czech history. It's something I was so blind on. You know, I, I I felt like I knew a bit about Soviet history. I didn't know anything about Czech history, despite having been to Prague. So I felt really enriched to know more about it. I, I actually read a brilliant book recently called Black Butterflies by Priscilla Morris, which is all about Bosnia and the siege of Sarajevo in the 90s. And I got a similar feeling from that as I did to this. It's like really eye-opening literature about a part of very, very recent history that I was ashamed to know nothing about. And this sounds like a weird thing to describe as a favourite bit, but I thought the section towards the end about their faithful dog, Karenin's death, was brilliant. It, it, it's And it's precisely because it's where Kundera is kind of at his best mingling that high-minded philosophising with the day-to-day aches and pains of life. So Karenin is, is fatally ill. He's the dog that's accompanied them from from Prague to Zurich and back and then to this farm commune where the story ends and he has a tumour removed Uh, you know he's still going to die he's coming around from the anaesthetic and it's described like this who can tell what distances he covered on his way back who knows what phantoms he battled and now that he was at home with his dear ones he felt compelled to share his overwhelming joy a joy of return and rebirth I knew you'd like the dog you love an animal with portent. portent. Um, I think another thing that muddles me about the book is the way that people and Kandara himself talks about it. In the art of the novel, he says, my novels are not psychological. More precisely, they lie outside the aesthetic of the novel normally termed psychological. What? The F, does that mean? Spoken like a man who likes wearing a turtleneck. <laughs> and speaking of Google, it's it's definitely the kind of book you have to Google afterwards and Google constantly being like, what does it mean? Which makes me wonder what people did in the 80s. I guess they 
bought newspapers and journals and they read criticism and they they kind of enriched themselves and wore turtlenecks and smoked and talked about books which is a, a lot more chic than me uh, like being horizontal on my bed scrolling with a double chin typing unbearable lightness being ending explain <laughs> i think about this all the time i'd only enjoy about half the telly i watch if i couldn't google what happens at the end of Black Mirror. What do you think about the whole lightness theme? So the one bit says he had entered Parmenides' magic field. He was enjoying the sweet lightness of being because lightness isn't just about being unshackled though, is it? It feels like it's maybe about being able to live without moral significance, like not caring what you so do. be a nihilist. Yeah, I guess so. Like, so you can just be a womanizing intellectual and not someone who's held account either for your liaisons, but also for your opinions, which is what happens to Thomas. He's effectively destroyed by the Soviet state for writing one article 20 years ago. I think it's, it's brilliant how that kind of uh, Kafkaesque, Orwellian thing happens and he you watch his life be deconstructed because he wrote this article a while back. Mm. And he won't apologise for it. Exactly, yeah. Um, lightness in this book for me is 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 animalistic, guilt-free, problem-free nature that 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 we should all strive towards. Kind of like Karenin, the faithful dog, and his his blissful outlook on life because he doesn't have a thing to worry about. Okay, I can understand that. So your favourite character is Karenin. I am a big fan in that she's really quite awful, of Teresa's mum and her reclamation of self after a miserable time in her marriage as a scatological being. I found it fascinating, even though it's quite cruel the way that she does it. She farts in front of all of her friends to make them laugh and to deliberately humiliate Teresa. And it imprints on Teresa like an absolute fear of bodily stuff. Like when she sleeps with Thomas the first time and her tummy rumbles when he opens the door to greet her and she's mortified. She sees it as her mother guffawing to ruin her meeting with Thomas. And I loved all that stuff, more than the Nietzsche stuff, because I am a corporal heathen. Speaking of heathen... Yes, let's talk about all sex. This book is the definition of the male gaze. Thomas is rapacious. His wife fears all women, we learn, because every woman is a potential mistress for him. And that's something else that really troubles her because she's so fucked up by her mum with the idea of the body that she fell in love with Thomas because she thought she could be like a particular body to him. And when it's just clear that she's one of many bodies, almost anybody, then that relates back to her mother who had no sense of sort of bodily shame or containing her body as her own it's almost quite hard to explain but I think he does it really well and Teresa dreams about cats clawing at her which the narrator happily explains is because Czech slang for women is cat and so she imagines his cats all over her and Thomas loves shagging around so much that he's actually happy when he has his license taken away to practice medicine because he gets to become a window washer which affords him the chance to sleep with way more women. And also, I do love this bit, when people find out that he was a doctor and was forced to emigrate because he wouldn't sign a pro-communist letter, they ply him with alcohol and they have these intellectual chats and the rich ones then allow him to tick for 13 windows at the end. Um, But back to Teresa, she realises one night that the smell in his hair is the smell of women's groins, plural, that's how it's described. Um, But there's no exploration of what this kind of philandering might mean. And I also find the way he keeps describing Teresa as neither mistress nor wife. She was a child who had been taken from a bulrush basket. Um, That's really quite weird. Is Thomas a sad man? 
I think he's only really sad in retrospect because times have changed. In the same way that Ryan Gosling in Crazy Stupid Love looks sad in hindsight, even though he seemed really cool at the time. There's no doubt that these characters are written as enviable intellectual womanizers. And if if Stoner is the anti-Gatsby, then Tomas is the anti-Stoner. Because while Stoner's life <laughs> leads up to one tryst with a mistress who he falls in love with and, and kind of ruins his life, Tomas's life is all about his mistresses, plural, and very little else. He's the kind of literary invention you don't really get anymore, that late 20th century bachelor with lots of beautiful women on the go. And I get weirdly, I guess because he's a surgeon, he reminded me a lot of uh, Toby Fleischman in Fleischman is in Trouble, who is quite a sad character, but is also someone who has a lot of trysts with a lot of women. Oh, he's way too anal, though. Thomas isn't anal. Yeah, true. He doesn't give a shit, does he? The bit where he divorces his first wife and willingly eschews his son and parents, I found really quite hard to stomach. Why should he feel more for that child to whom he was bound by nothing but a simple, improvident knight than for any other? He didn't want anybody making him fight for his son in the name of paternal sentiments. I mean, I guess saying the unsayable should be something that fiction should arguably do. Anyway, it goes on to say, thus in practically no time, he managed to rid himself of wife, son, mother and father. The only thing they bequeathed to him was a fear of women. Thomas desired, but feared them, needing to create a compromise before between fear and desire, he devised what he called erotic friendship. I have to say his rule of threes really made me laugh. Either you can see a woman, a woman three times in quick succession and then never again, or you can maintain relations over the years, but the rendezvous have to be three years apart. Yeah, I love that too. Or the, or the descriptions kind of from his point of view, which are so lascivious, but, but are kind of okay because they're so well written so one of his mistresses is a a charming drama student whose body has been tanned on yugoslavia's nudist beaches with an evenness that called to mind slow rotation on a mechanized spit (laughs) so joan smith famously wrote about him in her book misogynies that hostility is the common factor in all of kundera's writing about women and i was thinking about this i mean he isn't like martin amos or even Jilly Cooper, to be honest, with these vile Heathcliff types in all of her books that I'm reading at the moment, there isn't disgust or deliberately demeaning behaviour. But he did remind me of Picasso a bit and not just how he looked because Picasso was famously awful to women and Thomas does. Doesn't he drive some of his mistresses to consider suicide? Yeah, I think it's his wife that he he drives to consider suicide. And, it, it, well, probably among others, it's not like... One thing I did find about the book is it's not like the female characters don't have incredibly rich interior lives because yes, Teresa totally. is fascinating. And and one of my favourite passages in the whole book is one of her sections, which begin, you know, you were saying about her and her mother. There's this passage that's just incredible that says, she took after her mother and not only physically, I sometimes have the feeling that her entire life was merely a continuation of her mother's, much as the course of a ball on the billiard table is merely the continuation of the player's arm movement. And she also played an important part in the war. She takes these pictures of the tanks and gives the undeveloped roles to foreign journalists. And many of her photos, we learn, turn up in the Western press. There were pictures of tanks, of threatening fists, of houses destroyed, of corpses covered with blood-stained red, white and blue Czech flags. I recently watched Lee about the Vogue model turned photojournalist Lee Miller, who took some of the most important pictures during the war and she famously photographed herself in Hitler's bathtub with the mud from Dachau tracked 
onto his bath mat. Google that picture. It's incredible. But she was often described first as a society beauty. And Teresa's kind of talent, yeah, really reminded me of of that, how that wouldn't necessarily be the thing that people would say about her in the book um but i also think kundera is pretty progressive in lots of ways i loved something he once said about europe he said my own ideal of europe is the maximum diversity in minimum space what did you think about all the boiler hat stuff by the way that felt quite master and margarita it's kind of surreal rather than 50 shades vibes yeah kind of like clockwork orange vibe there's a lot of surreal elements to this book it's very meta but in a way that doesn't really go anywhere specific. There's, I mean, there's a first person I in that bit I just read out, and he does that a lot. He says things like, it would be senseless for an author to try to convince the reader that his characters once actually lived. They were not born of a mother's womb. They were born of a stimulating phrase or two. But there's no, you know, there's no, like, plot twist where he ends up being part of the story at the end. He's just, like, writing the book, and every so often it's like, hi, I'm the author, and you're reading a book. And he just feels like he has to keep reminding you. Another perhaps surreal or prescient bit is in the monologue from Franz. Culture is perishing in overproduction, in an avalanche of words, in the madness of quantity. So uh, cheers to removing our production from that. And there we go. Thank you so much for joining us for the last episode of Book Chat, but it will not be the last time that Bobby and I chat. Stay posted. We will definitely be continuing to talk about books amongst ourselves and hopefully in a space where you guys can listen to it at some point as well. I thought it was going to be the last time we'd ever chat, but okay, fine. Um, <laughs> I have got a question for you. What What is your favourite book you have discovered over the course of doing Book Chat? Good question. Maybe Tales of the City. But honestly, I'm also really glad you made me read Stoner, which I never would have picked up, even though it was very sad. And I'm really glad you made me reread Wuthering Heights, even though that was very sad. And that you suggested Close Range, which was also very sad. You? I'm just a sad, sad boy. Um, <laughs> you know what? Ditto on Tales of the City. Uh, I think about it a lot. I, I'd also probably say The Virgin Suicides, which is is brilliant. And for sheer enjoyment, I just absolutely loved our chat about Bridget Jones. I loved chatting about Bridget. Oh, I loved it. I've been so continually surprised and overjoyed making this. I think it just really shows how vital and I think you used the word enriching earlier. It can feel just a pluck, a, a book off your bookshelf that's been sitting there for 20 years and just to read it without any kind of hope or expectation so thank you and goodbye it's not the end it's just the end of us here and now it's not goodbye it's great bye uh and we're we're still <laughs> going to exist in the real world outside of your ears and we do still love hearing from you so please do not hesitate to email us your thoughts and your tearful farewells at bookchatpod at gmail.com Book Chat has been hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes fare thee well Fare thee very, very well. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.